Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. All right, so do you remember the old rhyme, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the playground sort of theme song, right? Where you'd pick out the two kids that happen to be standing close to each other near the monkey bars. And the next thing you know, the two of them are married because everybody starts chanting it. So I have, I think I have quite a few scars from that song. I think I was betrothed to any number of playground children at that point. I've never heard this rhyme before. You've never, <laughs> this is not in your generation now. No. And that's because, that's because apparently as a culture, we've killed the, this appropriate order of things. Uh. Yeah, that does seem to be the case, doesn't it? So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But um, Nat, uh, I think, has a story to share. Yeah, well, as you do, I was at a dinner party this week, and I sort of walked in late, uh, just as a function of when I was getting there, and uh, walked into conversation and was hit with, hey, how's it going? Uh, Why, you can speak to this because you're young, why is your generation getting married younger and younger and younger than when we went to college? So this is a conversation with sort of some of my parents, some of their friends. It was just, it was a lovely environment. But the question stands, um, we're seeing, you know, people getting married at like 19, 20, 21, which by chance I'm going to a wedding tomorrow of a 21-year-old. So some circumstantial evidence. And they didn't feel like that matched up with their experience 50 years ago or so when they went to college. And then to follow that, looking um, sort of outside Christian universities and sort of our church circles, you're seeing a lot of people who aren't choosing to get married immediately. Instead, you know, either live together or you know, set up sort of, sort of putting off marriage till later in their life. So mm. thoughts, opinions. It was an interesting conversation. And I thought uh, you guys might have something to add. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's it's funny because I don't, I haven't seen uh, actual evidence, Nat, in terms of some young people. Are, are you suggesting that it's primarily within Christian circles and Christian universities that was the conversation where younger people are, are getting married at very young ages, 19, 20, 21? Right. Okay. I mean, I certainly see a lot of engagements and I see a ton of pressure to sort of find the one in that 18 to 22 year old time frame, if you're at university, the thought sort of being whether you articulate it or not, a lot of people don't necessarily articulate it, but um, there's usually two reasons why people are going to a Christian university. One is for the education, of course, mm-hmm. well, maybe three. Two is to have an environment where, where maybe partying is not what is the norm or the atmosphere from every Thursday to Monday night or whatever. And then the third thing is, is that this is a great opportunity to, for you to find somebody for a lifetime because where else are you going to do that actually? So I do see a lot of engagements. I don't see, I mean, I would say I'm with 100 students a year, uh, maybe slightly more. And I would say out of them, I might only have one or two marriages. So I'm not sure what the numbers would bear out um, in all of that. But there is certainly a lot of pressure to get engaged and be married maybe the first couple months right after you graduate. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have had ample time during that conversation to do a little research. And um, the national marriage age is rising but not for this group of people. And so who is this group of people? Will this group of people happen to be uh, millennial women who are distinctly religious and therefore choosing to get married in their early 20s, which also means women are driving this? Yeah, that is interesting. interesting. It it is interesting. And uh, and I wonder why. I mean, there 
there obviously is a lot of fear, right? I mean, I, I think the flip side of this conversation is that if you, you better lock down the situation relatively early because there's a lot of fear that you might not then find somebody because it's, it, it's as much opportunity as there is on dating apps nowadays and, and, and sort of virtual online possibilities of at least vetting somebody or you're interested in dating them. It's not really yielding, I think, the kind of results we're looking for. And so there's probably some pressure to get married pretty early, but I haven't seen what some of the, the different maybe driving evidence would be behind that. Does, does, your re, does your crack research team, Carmen, do they have any further insight into the evidence here? Yeah. So my crack research team is actually from a study from the National Institute of Health in 2014 um, as a national survey about marriage and when people are marrying. And then this particular uh, cohort, which were young millennial women. And so it goes a little bit deeper into this. Here is what distinguishes them. Uh, Women who married younger usually, quote, are more religious, have more domestic and child-centered orientation to their life plan, and their peers are also getting married earlier. Hmm. So there you go. So it's it's happening in clusters, right? So you're seeing it maybe at uh, particular schools. Right. Um. Uh, in particular environments where, you know, other people are doing this. And so there is a, there would be a social, mm-hmm. um, you know, there'd be something social related to it. But it, it definitely looks like we're talking about people who uh, are placing a higher value on maybe the more traditional roles of men and women. And there's a going to be a child raising emphasis in these, uh, you know, for the mm-hmm. women in these partnerships. Yeah, and that's that's very uh, countercultural to what you see with the general trends. I mean, I, I think I've seen enough research where people are of the mind that we're sort of going the way of Japan here in the United States, where fewer and fewer people are actually getting married. Uh, childbirth rates are going to be on the decrease. It's certainly happening where I'm sitting right now in Europe, where they're concerned about uh, the people who are currently part of the population. That if there's not immigration, they're going to see the populations eventually die off. And I, I've seen some research where some states in the United States are worried about that. So whatever is motivating this trend among a small segment of the population, I'd be really curious to hear more. Why are they deciding? I mean, it's one thing to say they are deciding to get married as your research is showing, but I, but I would like to know more about why, what, what is the motivating factor? Uh, is it just, they really want to get started having children? Um, is there some sort of social pressure within their religious environment to get married? I don't really know the answer, but for sure that's a countercultural trend to what we're seeing. Right? I would definitely agree. Definitely agree. Well, and okay, so oh, go ahead, Nat. You guys had your saying about marriage and kids, or I don't know what that old saying was. <laughs> old first saying. comes love. Well, did you hear that old saying, Carmen? The old, old saying, saying. The old people. Yeah. First comes love, then comes marriage, yeah. then comes. It's not. Was it baby in the baby carriage? Because I think it was baby. You might have named silly. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might have named the baby, but not always. Yeah. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes you know. Victor in the Somebody. baby carriage. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think it was just baby. Baby in the baby carriage. I think so, too. Yeah. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, oh, okay. Nat. So what's the uh, what's the saying amongst your people? I don't know. We got ring by spring, right? Like, I know everyone sort of says it jokingly, but uh, oh, it gets mentioned a lot. ring by spring. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Oh, and plus. This is, this is at college, college, Christian colleges and yes. universities, ring by spring. 100%. Mm. I don't know if anywhere oh, else does sure. it. This is Peter, just my how circle. Old, Peter, how old were you when you got married? So Hallie and I were, let's see, it was 1994. I hadn't yet turned 24. We were both 23. Hallie, okay. newly 23. So not super young. 
No, that's young. That's young? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I was so wise for my years back there, Carmen. We were, we, you know, and so it, it didn't feel young at the time. <laughs> we got engaged, I guess, at 21. So, yeah, that was pretty young back in the day. Uh, uh, okay. So you're in this category of people that Nat's talking about. Your huh, representative. I, Would you, well, I was me, here in 19, so, 20, 21. So let's ask this. Peter, would you have any expectation that any of your kids will marry as young as you did? Maybe this is a maybe this is a different way to ask this question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I have an expectation. I would also say that I'm to use a double negative. I'm not not open to it. I mean, if if one of my kids, Caleb is our oldest at 20, he did have a, a pretty serious girlfriend for a while that we at least sort of all wondered kind of thing. And, the, and it didn't last. But if he would have come to me at some point and say, hey, dad, we're ready to get engaged and, um, and maybe get married 21, 22, I don't know that I would have counseled him against it. I wouldn't have said, yeah, by all means, you know, that's 100% the right thing to do. But I guess when I look back, now that we're talking about this, my brother and my sister-in-law, I think they got married at 21 or 22 at a private Christian institution and they finished their last year of school together. They talked about the fact that they could afford Captain Crunch and ramen noodles and an old sofa that they found on the, on the curb. And, and those first couple of years are really beautifully formative for their marriage. So, yeah, but I don't, you know, back in that time, it just seemed time, I guess. I mean, Hallie and I had been together for a while and it just seemed time. So I don't remember thinking that I felt super young about it. I wonder if the dystopian literature that is so popular among young people today may also yeah. be a contributing factor. If you actually think time is short, I mean, if, yes. you, if you actually think the world is going to end, then, you know, going ahead and getting married is not a bad idea. I mean, yeah. I didn't get married that, until my early 40s, so I am clearly not a good participant for this conversation. I'm um, not married, so, you know. Now you're 21, you're almost... But you're, like a, but you're a child. <laughs> yeah. But according to these stats, you're almost past it. You're on. You're, you're almost. I mean, you, Peter, don't say you're 21. It's almost over. You've missed, there's no ring by spring. There's not even ring by fall. Why did I point. go to a Christian university then? Yeah. Oh. 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 Okay. So I'm going to introduce the official topic of the day. Yeah. Love it. Please. Although the unofficial topic was fantastic. So thank you really Nat, for bringing us uh, that topic. Yeah. So um, I ran across this article in the Wall Street Journal and um, I have shared it with the two of you. Um, it is entitled Co-Parenting Sites, Skip Love and Marriage and Go Right to the Baby Carriage. And so Nat might m not think that we made up the saying since they are using it in the headline in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal as well. So uh, here's the story at the at the outset of the article. When Janeka Anderson felt the tug of a second child at age 37, the single mom weighed her options. Wait until she meets Mr. Wright or choose a sperm donor and go it alone. The first option didn't look promising, and the idea of a sperm donor wasn't appealing either because she wanted her child to have an active father just like her four-year-old son has now. Uh, I mean, what? I, I, I honestly, I mean, you, you and I and the three of us, we've talked about a lot of different things and, and it is fairly unusual when I'm sort of at a bit of a loss for words, at least on the front end of an article like this, I had no idea something like this is happening. And what you're outlining, Carmen, is that 
in the last 15, 20 years, technology has made so many different things possible that would have otherwise been unthinkable, just in the sense that you could go ahead and have a child through an anonymous sp a sperm donor. And clearly that hasn't worked out the way maybe people would like. So we're going to try a new option here. And that's what you're outlining, that there's a possibility that uh, you can go ahead and find another parent for your child that doesn't have anything to do biologically with that child. But I, just to backpedal for a okay, second, the so, opening part of this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's actually not what she's looking for. She is looking for someone who will be the biological father of her next child and who will also want to function as the father of her child, but who whom she will not have any other kind of relationship with. Right, um, right. And they will not live together. They certainly will not be married. So she is looking for a relationship that would produce a baby and then the financial and material support of that other parent. They want to co-parent a child. They just don't want to be in a relationship with one another. Got it. Okay. So I missed that part of the article. And so when I, when I saw the thing about the divorce um, part of it, that's what they're talking about here is it functions a lot in the way that a divorced family situation, right, where the parents are living apart from each other, but there's a shared biological child and there are shared finances and shared responsibilities. Um, but they're not even going through the step of, of getting married or anything along those lines. They just want to start right from that place. That's exactly right. Nat, what are your, some of your reactions? Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe this is just because I'm in college, but um, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind was, you know, like the, the phrase like friends with benefits or whatever. This is like yes. friends without benefits. I don't know. It was shocking. I, I wasn't really quite sure how to take the article because that's not at all where I thought it was going. Um, yeah, I, so, I, I don't know. Yeah. So apparently, you know, we've now developed these apps. There's these online apps, um, websites and apps that you can actually pay a subscription to. 90,000 people are participating in one of these particular platforms. Um, where they are trying to find someone with whom to have a biological child and share parenting responsibilities, but without the encumbrance of marriage. Oh. Um, and so here's a here's another line. It's a controversial approach to creating a family. And there are people who balk at it. I would say that we are balkanizers. I don't know. If that's, yeah. Yes, <laughs> totally sure. at all. The I will, I will honor that. Yes, for sure. I acknowledge that. Um, but, and here's a word that I found interesting, the idealized version of a man and a woman falling in love is short-sighted, said Miss Anderson, now 38 and pregnant. So, um, first of all, the system has worked for her. She, uh, she is due with a baby, um, and uh, the, the man with whom she has conceived this child lives 10 hours away across the Canadian border. So, um, there's a lot of details to be worked out about the plan for how this child is going to be raised by these two parents who live 10 hours apart, um, but who conceived in the traditional way of this child. Um, and uh, no conversation about what might happen if this is a child who has special needs. No conversation about um, how this child will be in relationship with the father mm. of the other child in this household, um, mm. who is on the scene regularly. Um, no conversation about um, uh, whether or not these people have any shared sense of values in terms of religion or morality. Um, I mean, the morality that's involved here so far would suggest that neither one of them is particularly religious. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I just I just I know that it's it's 
I'm not processing this very well out loud. But we have arrived at the day when through a subscription service online, um, people in our culture, uh, because they are unable to find someone with whom they want to start a family, they now want to have children because they are biologically ready to have children. What does that tell you about our Mm. sense of um, connection to God's ordering of human life and human coupling and and the the family system. Yeah, I think this is uh, unfortunately. I mean, there's a couple of different angles we can look at this, but uh, you, you reference the idea of an idealized version of man and woman falling in love is short sighted. Uh, I would argue with that claim. I, you know, I'm not sure what the idealized version is supposed to be, other than certainly Scripture teaches right from the outset and right from the beginning that male and female are meant to be with and for and and uh, intertwined with each other in a, in a family kind of situation. And so I'm not sure where the idea that that would be short-sighted comes from, other than the fact that we have lived in a couple of generations where we haven't seen a lot of models, right? I mean, when, when it was, uh, the, the divorce rates were 6% as of about the 1950s, I want to say, and it was about the 1960s and 70s when the norms really changed and the rates went north of 55, 60% at that point. And that was a direct product of increased individualistic opportunity, I want to say, and I can explain that in just a second a little bit more. But uh, I remember when I was studying here at the University of Edinburgh that uh, my advisor said, well, historically, people may have wanted to try to fulfill their individualized dreams, but they were unable to because there wasn't the technology and mobility that would allow them to do that. And so people were sort of stuck in villages and they were stuck in their communities and they, they didn't it, it made a lot more sense to just meet people and other families to stay together and to find spouses in those situations. It just was sort of the way of things. But with mobility and technology and then the globalization that's come from that, um, people have really been set loose from any kind of community, any kind of family, any kind of background in which they grow up. And so they don't have the models anymore for these sorts of things. And yet there's still the longings. There's the longings for a relationship. And then in this article, there's the longings to have children. But if you are have been sort of your own island for a very long period of time, uh, it's very difficult to find somebody and even have the time to find somebody. I mean, I know the article references at one point that uh, you can try to find somebody on one of these you know, Tinder sites or some of these dating apps. And it, it might take six months before you find if they're even somebody who would be a partner for you. And if you're, that might be fine when you're 23, but at 32, when the biological clock is sort of ticking, you can't waste all that time. But again, absent of historically what have been communities and people getting to know each other and growing up with each other, uh, I don't want to romanticize that too much, but I did meet Hallie in a small community when we were 15 years old. And we had a lot of shared life because of that. I wasn't on the internet. I wasn't on my phone all the time. I wasn't traveling all over the place. My friends weren't 20, 30, 50 miles away, all of those kinds of things. So you're just not thinking about all these other possibilities. You're sort of living in this village mentality. And again, I don't want to idealize that, but I think that has a, a, is a big factor as to why people are having a very difficult time finding spouses. Okay, um, so I was interested to know, like, who comprises the clientele of these um, platonic parenting platforms? Yeah. Um, and the male clientele outnumbers the female clientele on these uh, on these sites. And the male clientele, which means there are a lot of men who want to be having kids. And there are apparently not as many women who want to be having kids, which, you know, if, if we... 
if we want to just pause for a moment and acknowledge that Planned Parenthood's annual report came out last week and in the fiscal year 2018-2019, so it ended in the middle of 2019, you know, they reported a record record number of abortions performed by P- Planned Parenthood nationwide um, in, in excess of 345,000 lives um, and, and a $1.6 billion budget, um, more than $600 million of which was paid by U- U.S. taxpayers. Um, so... There are a lot of women. In fact, in fact, abortion has become kind of a strange religion in America. Choice, yeah. autonomy, the 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 choice um, of whether or not to have a child and when to have a child is certainly um, it's not idealized. It's idolized like there. It has become an idol in our culture, I think. Um, yeah. And 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 abortion is the sacrificial altar upon which many of those lives are sacrificed. But there's a male clientele out there. There's a male population of people who really do want kids. And I found that fascinating. They want to co-parent their children with women. They just also recognize that many of those women have no interest in getting married. Yeah. It's just really curious to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, Nat, I'd be curious for you, too. I mean, I reference, you know, what do you see in your generation when you look at the generations ahead of you? I'll just keep going back to it a little bit in the sense of, it seems to me that I end up wanting to do things in life based on experiences or models that I see. Like I, I see something and say, gosh, that is something to which I would want to aspire. And, and absent of a lot of marriages maybe to which somebody would want to aspire. I mean, are, are we missing this piece of it? What is it like for your generation to look, say, maybe at my generation uh, and Carmen's generation and say, I don't necessarily want that kind of life moving forward. It didn't, it didn't really work out for them. It, hmm, that's interesting. But as far as marriages go, um, I think that's, at least within my circle, still a really strong, that is that is sort of up there on the what we're shooting for and what people want. So, you know, at least within, say, like the roommates, you know, the wedding I'm going to tomorrow, uh, marriage was really kind of up there. Not, not idolized, but it's, it's something you're shooting for, right? Like it still is really, really a goal. Yeah, I... And, and I, I think that, again, absent of the role models, that I, I know that when I'm in churches sometimes with young people, they're, they're crying out in their first one or two years, three years of marriages, say, so how, how can we move forward? What do we do with this? And, and sometimes mm-hmm. Allie and I will do marriages, but we always tell the couple, we're not terribly interested in the premarital counseling right now. Let's talk through that first year together and, and what that looks like. Um, because I, I think we're just going to keep, otherwise, Carmen, going down this road. We're going to keep testing new ideas and new thoughts uh, to find some stuff. And I think, I think it's in the second half of this time together, I think it's worth wondering about. So what is the pathway forward in some of these places? How do we help in this? Because these young people and, and the kids growing up in them, when, when a child is five, six, seven years old and realizes the relationship between their mom and dad and they're in different places, they're not thinking to themselves, gosh, mom and dad should really be together right now. They're just growing up. That's their new normal. And what are we losing because of it? There's more of the till here in a second, but if you've ever wanted to tell us something or had any questions, you can shoot us an email at thoughts at the till podcast.com. So we know that there is a success sequence to life. Like we know that when we talk about um, avoiding poverty and raising children who flourish, um, there is a, uh, I mean, it's a formula. There's a success sequence. There's a success formula. First is education. 
uh, then get a job, uh, then get married, then have kids. It's actually the working order of poverty avoidance. Mm. Um, millennials, and so now I'm back to my reading statistics here off of uh, off of this one's off of Pew um, Pew Research. Um, millennials who follow the success sequence almost always avoid poverty. Oh, so, ninety-seven percent of millennials who got married first, um, let's see, who who married first. Um, were not considered poor by the age of 28 compared to 72% who had a child first and were considered poor at the age of 28. And so um, when you when you put education in, you know, and then you, first and then you get a job and then you get married and then you have kids, um, you not only have a higher likelihood of your marriage surviving, but your children thriving. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I wonder I wonder how many young people, because an increasing percentage of them are not raised in intact households where that is true. Um, I wonder how many of them don't know that yeah. um, there's mm-hmm. a there's a cycle of poverty that they can break. They can break a cycle of poverty if they will follow this success sequence. Yeah, agreed. And, and and I would imagine that if something happens sort of out of the norm of that sequence, but if you have those sort of four criteria in the pot somewhere, you can probably overcome a lot of stuff. And that seems to be the the rightly ordered sequence. But just even the idea of those things of marriage and education and and kids that to avoid some of those things. But to your point, I think it goes back to uh, I, I use the example in class. I remember when the year went by, it was maybe 2017 ish when it began to be the case that young people in my classrooms were not growing up in contrast anymore. And and by contrast, I mean contrast where they knew life before the cell phone in their pocket and life after the cell phone in their pocket. Like the, the cell phone was always just sort of an assumed reality that uh, obviously all the studies show that as helpful as mobile phones are and, and having these computers in our pocket on so many different levels, they also are often the source of anxiety, depression, turmoil, all of those stats. But the young people growing up at that point, they hadn't ever experienced the idea that a phone might have been attached to a wall and that you couldn't move beyond 11 feet if you wanted to talk to somebody. And when you answered it, you kind of were taking a risk every single time because you had absolutely no idea who it might be. And if there's five people in your household, it might be for somebody else besides you. And you would answer (laughs) it on behalf of another person. And if they got on the phone, then you knew you couldn't get a call for however long they were on the phone. I mean, they're just... The, the communication was so limited. And so like every generation, right, has that where they don't know what they don't know. And we lose that contrast. And I think that's one of the greater fears I would have about this situation is <clears throat> we're moving into generations now that increasingly won't have the contrast. They won't say, I remember life before same gender marriages were embraced in our country. I remember life before we um, were all about gender blurring. I remember life before we could have kids through an anonymous donor and possibly live apart in these situations. You sort of just grow up and, and that's whatever delusions are, delusions by their definition typically mean we don't know we're living in them. You're, you're, if you're deceived, you're not walking around saying, hey, look at that, I'm deceived. You're, <laughs> when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. And, and I think that's the hardest part about this is what kind of havoc might be wreaked in these situations that you are describing in this article as we're reading through it together 
that maybe we don't even know that it's wreaking havoc, that it's leading to, we just assume this is the normal, this is the way things have always been. And so I'm using sometimes the phrase, the Josiah moment, right? Like it's always interesting to me to look back in the biblical text and say, how in the world did Israel lose sight of the book of the law? I mean, for Pete's sake, it was the very defining document that gave shape to their community. How in the world did they ever lose this thing? And, and yet they did, and there needed to be a renewal, and there needed to be a reestablishment of things. And I think that's what's most interesting about this, is give this another generation, and, and it becomes the new normal about the way relationships can and should work. But you just read, Carmen, very compelling statistics that said this probably is not going to be the most helpful way moving forward. So I don't know your thoughts on some of those things, but, but it is interesting to see where we are in the, in the shift in what has been a generational redefining of family in so many different ways. So I'm glad you made a reference there to the generation to the generations because I want to I want to move to that portion of this conversation, um, and maybe I will do it by asking this. Um, so Peter, your oldest child is 20. Yep. So check that one off because you're done, right? Yeah, I mean, for all intents and <laughs> right. purposes, he should and, be able to feed himself. I mean, right? And Nat, you're you're 20. Yep. Plus so some. your parents are done. Yep. Really. Well, I don't okay, because I mean, I I'm live in 51 house, so. and I still like totally like, I mean, I don't totally rely on my mom, but I, call I her every, like, right. I like, say, she's offering I, today to do things for me that I cannot do. I, mean, I could do them for myself, but I'd have to take a day off work to do them. And so mm. she's like, hey, I could do those things. So yeah. here's my here's why I surface that, because these people in this article who are you know going to have this baby together in just a few months. They actually view this as something that, you know, is basically 20 years because, you know, it takes the time to conceive the baby and then have the baby and then 18 years and then you're done. You're done with each other. So here's a quote from from this. And this is from the the male uh, involved in all of this. He's 36 years old, by the way. So you would think that by now he would he would this delusion issue is big, I guess is my point. He says, well, you know, we're talking about the next 20 years of your life. Uh, and uh, so I pa- uh. I paused there because in the prior paragraph, in the prior paragraph, it says at the end of the July, at the end of July, she met his parents in Canada and he met her parents in Montana. Well, OK, so their parents are still parenting at some level and they're 36 yeah. and 30 something years old. Um, so they both have families involved in this. There are grandparents involved. There, these people are all going to be grandparents of this yep. baby. Um, yeah. And yet this man thinks that, well, I mean, I'm going to co-parent with her for this period of time, like 20 years. Well, what exactly does he think is going to happen when this child <laughs> that they're producing together is a young adult and and wants to bring somebody, quote unquote, home to meet the parents? Well, yeah. there's no there is not going to be a home and. Uh. And and she's going to have at least been raised in part by the father of the four year old who she's going to grow up with in a household like I I just I I don't know how much thinking these people have done. And then when you scroll down a little bit further, one of the things that you find out is here's a line for you. They plan. Now, remember, she's like 17 weeks pregnant at the publishing of this article. So, you know, further along now they plan to draft a legal contract that lays out their parenting responsibilities, but they don't intend to do that until after the baby is born. Wow. Well, what if surprise this baby is born in, you know, with some condition Mm. that is not anticipated? Yep. 
Yeah. I I'm mean, just, I just, I, there are just so many points of this that, you know, and they come right out and say their daughter is due in June, which, okay, they're already calling, they're already calling it a baby. Mm-hmm. They're already describing it as female. I mean, they're already identifying it as female and they're already using the word daughter. And so I, yeah. there's a part of me that reads this and I'm like, okay, so the whole like pro choice crowd who says, that's not a baby until it's born. It's a fetus. And the whole gender fluid crowd, which says you can't assign a gender. I mean, yep. but but they're applauding this because it's a it's a totally new way to, you know, craft a family. And yet we're clearly using language like biological clock. We're using, um, you know, clear uh, references to gender. We're using uh, clear references to the fact that you need a man and a woman to conceive a baby um, yeah. and that a baby is a baby and that a daughter is a daughter. Like I. Help me out here. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different angles that you just referenced there. I mean, it, it's a little stunning that somebody would say that I'm done and dusted and I can go Pontius Pilate on this whole thing when they turn 20 years old and just wash my hands of the situation. I I mean, it's it's tongue in cheek to say at best that my 20 year old is all just sort of ready to go. I, I mean, the most common living situation in the United States for young people right now at the age of 25 years old is still living with their parents. It's the most common because it's economically a lot more difficult. The stats show out that uh, the cost of living has nearly doubled in the last 20 years. And, and income totally has not totally move back in with my mom if she thought it was yeah, okay. But. I just did. Yeah, see, well, there you go. So the two of you, I mean, there, there you have it. And I mean, I, my, when I went to get some of my graduate work done, if it wouldn't have been for my dad to help fund some of that stuff, and I was 34 years old, uh, and, and he really came around us and did some, some amazing stuff for us in those moments. And Callie and I have talked about it at length. We fully anticipate that we're parenting for a lifetime and it, and it doesn't mean we parent in the same way, but we don't stop being parents at 20 and, uh, as if that's going to suddenly uh, go away or, Hey, we got to have a chance that experience. I mean, I traveled to Iceland, I traveled to Paris, uh, Paris and I was a parent, you know, as if it's one of those things, this is a, this is a lifetime part of it. And then to your point, Carmen, I was just talking with somebody here in Scotland too about how um, confused sort of the entire progressive community is in the sense that they don't have a cohesive series of thoughts. It's, it's very scattershot. I mean, on one end, you'll have somebody saying we should embrace same gender relationships. Um, but somebody who in theory should be part of that campus saying, well, there's no such actual thing as gender anyway. So if you can't have gender, then you can't have same gender relationships. And already the, there's gender blurring communities at odds with the same gender communities. And then if they're celebrating this, where there's categories such as son and daughter and male and female and biological sex, the whole thing is really built on a house of cards at this point. And I, 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 I wish we could all project out 30 years from now to see the results of it. Because it, it doesn't seem like it's going to lead to sort of the the fulfillment, I mean, this article started with a 37-year-old woman, right, Who whose biological clock was ticking, and at least to some extent, she wanted to have a second child and didn't see other prospects for it at that point. Uh, it might seem interesting to do in the moment and convenient in the moment, but I'd be really curious where this stands 20 or 30 years from now in her life then at that point. So looking just as, as I was reading through the article, it's kind of at a core, it's a search for parenting, right? It's a desire to host a family and do parenting and raise a child. Um, but I think, Carmen, you mentioned somewhere earlier, like where here is the child really considered in this? So if you're going to parent someone 10 hours away, like that's really tough. Keeping a relationship that far away is just hard. And like I'm dating someone who is at the moment 10 hours away. It's 
rough. You know, letters are awesome, but, uh, you know, like, I wouldn't want to raise a family that split 10 hours. Like, that's hard. Yeah, so, I mean, Carmen, you've had some blended family experience, right? I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm assuming that there's, there's unique challenges to some of these situations. Oh, yeah, super challenging. There's clearly the, there's clearly the God-ordained way to do this, and then there's just all the various ways that we create a mess. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. I noted uh, at a place earlier in the article that um, Mr. Duvall in this uh, story has clearly fallen in love with Ms. Anderson. Yes, and that's a so problem. There, it's clearly a problem. Like, she, right. like there's even at one point this, uh, um, you know, the word marriage comes up, right? The, the, yep. the prospect of possibly getting married and living. Um, uh, here's the question. Will their non-traditional union end in marriage? Quote, well, it comes up regularly in our conversations. This is Ms. Anderson talking, but it's not in the forefront. Okay, so who who's bringing it up in those regular conversations, guys? <laughs> Mr. Yeah, Duvall, well, Duvall clearly, is bringing yeah. it yes, up. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Clearly, Mr. Duvall is bringing it up. He's the one living 10 hours away. Um, she is the one who is going to be the custodial parent to this child who's going to be born in the United States of America, and he lives in Canada. So I'm just, you know, um, Mr. Duvall says, um, I think about it a lot. That's in reference to the marriage question. I think about it a lot because I'm a romantic at heart. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm saying to myself, here's a guy who really wanted to get married and had kids. The women he was dating didn't want to have kids. He found a woman who wanted to have kids, but now she doesn't want to get married. Yeah. Oh, boy. I, I, I mean, I mean it's, I'm it's... heartbroken. Are you just kind of heartbroken for this guy? It's tragic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hard to know even what to say, right? I mean, I, I, I think this is when, when, when there's a possibility. I mean, we all have these longings, right? And we all have voids in our life, whatever they happen to be. In this man's case, clearly, it has to do with what you just referenced and, and kids and having a spouse. But I think sometimes the remedy to our longings <laughs> becomes more problematic than the longings themselves. And that's exactly And right. so I, I just, when did we lose sight or when did, when did we start thinking that um, all of our dreams, desires, and hopes should be fulfilled in this life? And if not, we don't, we're not living our best life now or whatever it might happen to be, but, but clearly creating, we create these possibilities to try to bring wholeness into our lives in these voids and absences. And unfortunately they hardly ever do. Right. I mean, they just hardly ever bring what we think they're going to. I, I don't know of a single couple that's gotten married that doesn't say five, six, seven years in, if you ask them the question, so what was unexpected? What did you not sign up for here? And, and every couple will have a pretty long list of what they didn't exactly sign up for. And yeah, there's a beauty and a wonder of working through some of the, that stuff together, if you can, uh, and if you have some people around you to find a, a sort of a, a deeper source of connection. But I, I don't know what he thinks he's signing up for here. Um, but clearly it's not going to yield maybe the results that's going to fill that longing, I would think. But I mean, I don't know, Nat, I'm curious in terms of longing, desire and where to turn, you know, you're at, at your age, I'm sure you're getting messages like you need to go out and seize the world. You need to take it by its tail and shake it. And, and you need to realize all of what your dream should be at this point. And if not, you're getting a raw deal. Oh, totally. hundred percent. That's definitely like the the environmental push is to go do great things for the good of all mankind and do some large god-shaped project and you know conquer 
uh, which, you know, it sometimes happens, but I, I don't know that that's the, the sole focus that should happen. Uh, while I was reading this article, I was sitting down for breakfast at noon, um, and uh, the bagels were delicious. Uh, I was reading this with my two <laughs> cats who were curled up up on the chair, and uh, they were content, and and I was thinking about this because because we have both a, a you know a male and a female cat here and and both of them are well one of them was neutered and the other one was spayed and you know we have one of each and so uh, you know one of these cats probably at some point had uh, you know a desire for motherhood <laughs> uh, but but clearly now that uh, you know, now that things have changed uh, they're living this this life content and sort of tooling about in their cathood and I realize it's not a very good necessarily transient uh, moving over to humans but uh, there there's got to be something more to to finding a content life than just hitting down the track that's set out for us right like yes I may have yes. just dug myself a huge hole no life I, doesn't, that's a beautiful life does, hole that it's a beautiful beautiful hole life does not always um follow a path that we might anticipate yeah. And and so much of the walk of faith is learning to walk by faith in the midst of circumstances that are very, very different than what we might have been led to expect. Um, you know, I expected to follow that uh, that success sequence. I expected that after yeah. I got my education and a job, I was going to get married and have kids. That's not the way it worked yeah. out. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, once God brought Jim to me or me to Jim, however you want to think about that, um, Jim came with a lot of people. So, I mean, you know, I now have like tribal life, right? So I have like lots of people and they're multiplying. Um, And so I feel incredibly blessed. Um, I don't feel, I don't feel less of a Christian or less of a woman because I didn't have my own biological children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But I do recognize that within the Christian church, there is often, there is often an idol made not only of marriage, but an idol made of, of childbearing. Um, of biological progeny. And so I get that. Um, I yeah. understand that the legacy that I'm going to have amongst uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ, my my younger brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, that is going to be my legacy. Those are my uh, my brothers and sisters. Um, my, my spiritual children, you know, like are my children, right? And the children who yeah. uh, live in my household um, are ones who I get to participate in raising, but they have a mom, right? And it's not me. So yeah. I get all of that. It's life is complex and yes. um, and messy, and it's complex and messy because of the fall, which I do think takes us back to um, sort of the right order of things and what we absolutely must lift up before we bring this um, episode of the till to a close. And that is this: um, God made them male and female in His image, and He declared it good. God made yeah. marriage and declared it good. God told man and woman um, in that marital relationship. Uh, to be one flesh and to reproduce, to you know, to multiply, to multiply bountifully, to fill the earth, um, and he declared that very good. And so, when we um, sort of break that down, um, and we fail to hold uh, sex and gender and and marriage and parenting and childbearing all together, when we fail to hold that all together, um, we are dividing something that. God really said should never be divided, something yeah. that is indivisible in terms of God's uh, good ordering of things. And so, you know, I, I think we have to recognize that what we're dealing with is a fallen reality and a fallen humanity. 
Um, but we live in a redemptive and gospel universe. And so that's the, you know, that's certainly the declaration that we need to make. Yeah. And I think in light of what you're saying, Carmen, in, in the fallen world in which we live, where maybe things are not going to work out in the ways that we might want them to, and even understandably so, the question is, is then what do we do about it? And, and sort of my summary of this article is sort of the classic Genesis 3 move of humankind of cutting God out of the equation, deciding that they can be God themselves and form a pathway forward that they believe is right in their own eyes. And those sorts of things hardly ever work out in the end. They just, that those pathways that we create untethered from God end up perishing, however they might, good they might seem in the moment. And there's a different invitation in that. It actually goes back to the, the cat example that you gave a second ago that because I have cats at home as well, I've got three of them and I love it when they're just purring contentedly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just laying there in that moment. And, and it's one of the great mysterious and very hard invitations of the Christian faith to say in a world that is broken, where you're not going to realize the fullness of the shalom that your heart desires, can you find contentment in the midst of the absence? And instead of taking the Genesis 3 move and deciding to create some reality that may not be what it is that we're called to, can you sit and learn to live in the contentment and the absence um, while you wait for the fullness to come, that be in the world that will come and be redeemed? That is the hardest invitation. Uh, so I think what we've talked about so far here, Carmen, today and, and Nat is, uh, again, a classic example, understandably so, of a group of people who are taking a Genesis 3 shot at stuff to try to deal with the boys in our heart. Oh, Peter, that's so good. I think um, everything from trying to make a name for ourselves um, to try to do something that, you know, builds itself up um, in a way that is not ultimately honoring to God um, instead of submitting ourselves to the goodness and mercy of who he is and then just fully trusting in him, just fully trusting God to be God and God is good. Yeah. Well, that'll wrap up our episode here for the Till. Great conversation, you guys. Looking forward to next time. See what we can unearth from the headlines and see what kind of animal examples Nat can bring. So join us again here, everybody, for listening next time on the Till. 